We are in John, <clears throat> excuse me, John chapter four, 15, beginning in verse 12. That's page 902 if you have a pew Bible this morning. This is my commandment, that you love one another as I have loved you. Greater love has no one than this, that someone lay down his life for his friends. You are my friends if you do what I command you. No longer do I call you servants, for the servant does not know what his master is doing. But I have called you friends. For all that I have heard from my Father I have made known to you. You did not choose me, but I chose you and appointed you that you should go and bear fruit and that your fruit should abide, so that whatever you ask the Father in my name, he may give it to you. These things I command you, so that you will love one another. This is the word of the Lord. The series that we're in is in the latter part of the book of John, where Jesus has his disciples, if you're new among us this morning, and uh, is giving them the last words that he has to give before he's going to be gone in just a few hours. And so I think, and the premise of this whole study and series is that those are pretty significant words. All of Scripture is profitable, but I think some is more profitable. And I think these words of Jesus to his disciples before he's going to depart have some some precious things in a, in in there for us and them. Um, the context that we've been in the last several weeks is the context of their troubled hearts. Their hearts are troubled. They are, if you will, hand-wringing. I mean, Jesus has been talking about some stuff, and it has undone them. And so what Jesus is doing now is, is building a foundation under them. Some of it they will get then, or, or when he speaks it, but most of it will come later. Most of it they'll remember the words that he said later, and it will stabilize them as, as they go through some very troubling days in the future. So we want to learn from that. We want to learn. And one of the things that we have learned, I hope, is that Jesus gives us the promise of a place to stabilize us, to to help us with our hand wringing. Because these words were not only written for them, but those who would believe because of them, which is us. And so when we're tempted to hand wringing, one of the things that stabilizes us is that Jesus has the promise of a place for his people. A place much different than this place. A place where all of the brokenness will be gone one day. So the promise of a place. And then we went on to talk about the promise of a helper to get us to that place. Not only is he going to prepare a place and has a place, but he's going to walk with us to that place in the presence of the helper. The Spirit of Christ will be with us. And in both cases, we have talked about the fact that the reason that those promises can take place and the reason Jesus says those promises can happen and be fulfilled is because I am going away. In in other words, the very thing that most troubles you is the very thing that is going to accomplish those wonderful promises for you. And certainly that's the way... Oftentimes it works as we walk with God. The very thing that we want to run away from oftentimes is the thing and the means by which God uses to to actually teach us something and teach us something of his reality and of his care for us. Just this morning, I think, would be evidence of that as I was discussing with Kelly Ray about her trip and talking a bit about coming out of Haiti after she and her daughter and 
And Deb had been there, and, and one of the things that she recounted to me was in the midst of a different culture and a, and a different people and different environment that, that she sensed God's help to do things that were not natural to her to do, to move toward things that in, in our natural sense we would, we would move away from. And so oftentimes that's what we do, don't we? We, we? we try to avoid the hard things. We don't put ourselves in those contexts. And so we miss out on the promise of God being fulfilled. And I think it would have been the same for the disciples. I mean, Jesus promises them a place and he promises them a helper and they would rather he just stay around. They would rather he just stay here where it's comfortable and they, the boat doesn't get rocked. You just stay with us. That'll be fine. Thank you. But that's not the way God works. And so what he says is the reason it can be accomplished is because I'm going away. And unless I go away, it won't be accomplished. So he said, first of all, I'm going to prepare a place. And we talked about the fact that he was not getting the bed made. But rather, he was preparing the way to the place. His preparation was that he had to go to the cross. And he had to, to knock down every last obstacle to us getting to the place, which was payment for our sin. And he paid it fully, and he paid it well, and he paid it completely. And so the way is open now for us to go and to experience that place one day because the obstacle to it was our sin, and our sin has been dealt with. He finished the work. He did everything that was necessary that the way could be made for us to get there. And I hope you you think about that often. I hope you relish the promises of the gospel often. When we sang this morning again in in a couple of different cases, in, in the second hymn we sang together, in Christ Alone, it talks about the wrath of God being removed. In the last song that we sang today, when all I have is Christ, again, it talked about the wrath being removed. The wrath, what is the wrath? God's wrath against sin. Our sin has been removed. That obstacle is no longer there. It is, it is moved. And it, it's interesting again, this idea that, that we try sometimes in our natural sense to remove the very thing that will accomplish what God wants to accomplish. I've told you before the song in Christ alone, um, it's sung widely today, but it would be sung more widely and it would be in more hymnals if, if the writers would have been willing to remove the word wrath from it. In fact, there were proposals of how to write that song and remove the word wrath, the wrath of God, out of the song, and then they would put it in their hymnals. And gratefully, the Getty said, no, no, we will not remove it. And they didn't. You see, again, a picture of how if we had it our way, we'd do it differently. In our natural state, the very thing that that sometimes we recoil against and we want to go around or don't want to hear about, in this case, the wrath of God, is, is the very thing that we need to hear, that we need to go through. We need to embrace it, that God is angry at sin. Or else the gospel doesn't have the beauty that it should have. It, it pleased the Father to crush the Son. Why? Because of his wrath toward our sin. Your and my sin. The sin of all who believe. Who, whom Jesus experienced God's wrath for that. And so in that sense it pleased the Father. There was pleasure in the Father in one dimension. That that wrath could be dealt with. 
and, and justice could be had, even though it meant at the expense of his son. Those are truths that the natural man runs from and recoils against. But they're the things that bring forth the promise of God. And the promise of God in this sense is the promise that the way has been cleared. The way has been cleared so the place can be there for us. So the place can be there for us to remove all obstacles from it. That's why Jesus said, that's why that text takes on new meaning, I hope. I'm the way. I'm the truth and the life. I'm the way because I've blazed the way. I've blazed the trail. No one else has done that. No one else has experienced the wrath of the Father. That's what Christianity teaches. There's only one who could and did. And to be a Christian is to believe that. He is the only one that could do it. Not that there's some others, other places who could do it, but he was the one who could do it. You see, but if you take away the wrath, then maybe somebody else could be the way. You see, if it's, if it's not a matter of somebody having to experience the wrath of God, because we've taken that out, then maybe it just, maybe somebody else, someplace else would have a road that would get you there and a way that would get you there. Sadly, Many take away the wrath of God because they don't want to hear about it and they jump on other roads thinking that road will get me there now. And the truth is it won't. They will be sadly, sadly disappointed. Oh, so sadly disappointed. One day when they find that way was not the way at all, but the way was the one who took away the wrath of God for us. So, so he prepared a way. He prepares a place by preparing a way. Then he, the promise he gave us that he would walk with us there, that he would send a helper. We talked about that again in John chapter 14. Not only um, the promise of a helper, but the promise that that helper would, and this is what we talked about in one of the weeks, the third week, I believe, that, that we would do greater works than even Jesus did because this helper was going to come, that, that somehow we would do that. The text that says in verse 12, truly, truly, I say to whoever believes in me will also do the works that I do, Jesus speaking, and greater works than these will he do. Because, why? Because I'm going to the Father again. Because Jesus is going to the Father, there's a dimension in which we will do greater works as his people than Jesus did. Now, again, we spent some time talking about that, and we, we talked about the fact that, that I, I do not believe he's talking about miracles in that sense. He's not talking about greater miracles. No one has done greater miracles than Jesus. But rather, what we came to see, I hope, is that the greater works are a life of work, words and deeds that prompt people to believe in Jesus, thus giving glory to the Father. It's the whole idea that they would see the glory of God in our existence. It's the glory of God. They would see the glory of the Father in the face of the Son. That, that we would, we would in, in, in many ways, to greater degrees, show the world the face of Christ. Even greater ways than Jesus did. Um, that's, a, that's an amazing statement. And, and what we came to talk about is that the reason that it's greater is because we now live in the age of clarity. What Jesus did in going to the Father was that he, again, he walked through all that he needed to walk through. 
to get us to the place, but also to, to, to allow us to do greater works than Jesus because we are now doing them on the backside of him going to the Father, not on the, not on the front side of that. And so there's greater clarity. We will do them with greater clarity because the gospel now has been seen in the life, death, burial, resurrection of Christ. And it's been accomplished. It's been finished. It's, it's, and it's, it's taken to the world in the power of the indwelling Holy Spirit within God's people. So in many sense, it's an age of clarity and an age of power that we live in that, that I think has something to the meaning of what Jesus meant when he said we would do greater works. You see, greater Jesus works glorifying the Father were always in anticipation of what he was going to do. Ours now, the works that his people do, that we do, are in light of now a crucified a risen and a reigning Christ, clarity, and in the power, again, of the indwelling spirit. So we spent time talking about that. Then last week, it builds on one another. All of this builds together. Last week, we talked about fruit. Uh, We talked about bearing fruit. In, In John chapter 15, those first verses of John chapter 15, Jesus says, I am the true vine, my father is the vine dresser. Every branch of me that does not bear fruit, he takes away, and every branch that does bear fruit, he prunes that it may bear more fruit. And so we talked about fruit. And we talked about what that fruit is. And again, I think it all ties to the building in this text that that fruit, again, is a life. A life that prompts people to, to scratch their heads. A, a life that's lived by the power of the gospel and the power of the indwelling spirit that causes people to just say, I don't understand them. I don't understand the way they operate. I don't understand how their heart operates. I don't understand the unique ways in which they seem to move toward people. In the text this morning, it talked about loving one another. I don't understand the way their heart loves. And and last week we talked about the fact that it, it happens. It happens at the heart level in God's people. The fruit that it's talking about here, the fact that God is committed to causing his people to bear fruit, the means by which that happens is the means of God in the hearts of his people rearranging things, changing things in their heart, sanctifying a people, if you will, making them more and more like himself. That's the means, that's the fruit, I think, that gets produced in a people, and, and that fruit then is the fruit that, of words and deeds that cause people to look to Jesus. And, and it all starts at the heart level. God is, is committed to enable his people to produce much fruit, much heart change. And the point we made last week is, and we made it again in my Sunday school this morning, the reason people notice that is because they know their hearts. The natural man outside of Christ knows his heart and they know the default of their heart and they know what happens in their heart. And when a a heart of another person, they see another person and, and they see that their heart goes in directions and in ways that their heart doesn't, it causes them, it causes them to take notice. 
They know their hearts do not willingly, joyfully embrace moving toward people in love. They just know that. That's not where it goes. And, and, and even beyond that, they know especially that is not where their heart goes when, when those people that they move toward joyfully oppose them. The text this morning in my Sunday school class talks about when people say manner of evil against you, let your good works be done so they might glorify your Father in heaven. In other words, move toward them. Bear fruit of, of the fact that God is in your life and, and your heart ticks and operates differently than theirs. Now, where I want to do this morning in the rest of our time is, is I want to talk about an amazing promise again. Another promise that comes to us in all of that. All of that we've talked about. There's an amazing promise. Look at it now in verse 16 of our text this morning. Take your eyes there and just, just hear what the scripture says in light of that. Um, it, it says this, You did not choose me, but I chose you and appointed you that you should go and bear fruit and that your fruit should abide. Okay, that, so, so much so far. We've already talked about that. That, that God is committed to fruit bearing in his people. And the way he does that is by rearranging their heart. He comes into their heart. He begins to do heart work in their heart. And he changes their heart from what it naturally would be to something different. He does heart work. That it, the heart level is where God works. And as he begins to change the heart of his people, the world notices that. They scratch their head and, and hopefully ask for the reason, for the hope that's within us so that we're able to tell them. Now, go on with me from there. This is what it says. God's commitment is that he appointed you that you should go and bear fruit now, by the way, that fruit is done by pruning. That's, that was last week. The pruning, God prunes. He prunes it. He works in us. He, he, he troubles us. He puts us in places of discomfort sometimes and places where he can ex- show himself to be strong. The things that we want to run away from, God puts us there. He moves us toward that. He does work in our hearts. He gets us to start asking what's going on in our hearts. And then it says this. So that whatever you ask the Father in my name, he may give to you, may give it to you. That's an incredible promise. Listen to it again. You did not choose me, but I chose you and appointed you that you should go and bear fruit and that your fruit should abide. So that whatever you ask the Father in my name, he may give it to you. What does that mean? It's incredibly important that we get it right. He doesn't say it just once. He says it more than that. Go back to verse 7. He says the same thing almost in verse 7. He says, if you abide in me, my words abide in you, ask whatever you wish, and it will be done for you. It is so important that we get that promise right. And I guarantee you the natural inclinations of our heart will not take us places that get that right. It's the same kind of inclination that I talked about in, in uh, chapter 14 and, and verse 12, where it says, you will do greater works. Our first inclination is we think miracles. We think, oh, that'd be pretty neat to 
that promise. But that's not what it's saying. And I don't think, again, the place our heart first goes is what this is saying. So what is he saying? What does he say when he says, you can ask whatever you wish and it will be done for you? Or whatever you ask the Father in my name, he may give it to you. What does he mean? Because it's incredibly important to get it right. So that's what I want to do this morning. I want to take some time to, to, to see what he's saying. To see what, after we get beyond the natural inclinations of our heart and where it takes us to go where Jesus really is trying to take us and what he's trying us to see in the greater context of this text. The condition, the condition is abiding. There is a condition in this. It says in verse 7, If you abide in me... And my words abide in you. Ask whatever you wish, and it will be done for you. Uh, Earlier it says, abide in me, and I in you. As the branch in verse 4 cannot bear fruit by itself unless it abides in the vine, neither can you unless you abide in me. The whole idea of abiding in him and he in us is a condition. We're to, to abide in him. Now, what does it mean to abide in him? Because that seems to be the conditional clause. If we abide, we can ask whatever we want in his name and it will be done for us. What does it mean to abide in him? I think this text, not not the text we read this morning, but the previous text begins to open it up for us. And so I take you back to verse 7. And I think the key lies in that verse when it talks about abiding, because it says, if you abide in me and my words abide in you. My words abide in you. The key, I think, is my words. My words. What does it mean for his words to abide in us? You see that? Just not abiding, but he clarifies it. Let his words abide in us. His words. I think what it means is that when his words abide in us and and really abide in us, that we begin to operate according to his priorities. We begin to see his priorities. We begin to love his priorities, and therefore we begin to pray according to his priorities. Let's look at it a minute. The the priority, first of all, I think that it moves us to when when God's words abide in us, we, we begin to resonate with the priority he has to save a people for himself, namely us included. When we really let his words abide in us, it's interesting in the text this morning uh, or not this morning, but this this whole text in verse three of chapter fifteen. Go back with me for a minute to that verse, and and try to track with what I'm saying in regards to the fact that God's one of the priorities that God has is a priority to save a people, and and when we let His words abide in us, that priority begins to resonate in us. Look what He says in verse three of chapter fifteen. 
He's, he's talking about being divine and the, and the Father's divine dresser. He talks about every branch that doesn't bear fruit. He, he cuts off and throws into the fire and those that do, he prunes them. But then, then he says this. He just, almost like it gets thrown in, in the middle. It's like he came up with a sentence and he just shoved it in there and then he goes on because verse three, if you took verse three out, you could read right on to verse four and it, and, and he's continuing to talk about abiding. But in verse three, he says this. Already you are clean. Already you are clean because of the word that I have spoken to you. It's almost like he, somebody just dropped a, a, a verse in there out of the blue because it doesn't flow with the thought. You see what I mean? If you took it out, you could keep that thought going. It wouldn't do any damage to the flow of it. But he drops in there. You are clean because of the word that I have spoken. It's the same thing that happened a while back. The same kind of thing got spoken about Judas. When, remember him with the disciples and he said, you are, all of you are clean except one, except Judas, but not all of you. You are clean, but not all of you, I think is the way it says it. And he was referring to Judas in that text. What does it mean you are clean? And here specifically he says you are clean by the word. That's, that's what I want you to get. I think what he is saying here, what he's reminding them, he's reminding him of his priority to save a people. He's reminding them that, that, that they, don't, they don't allow the pruning process in order that he, they can somehow get pruned enough to make it into the kingdom. But they are already in the kingdom and the, and the truth and the reality of what it means to be in the kingdom is God will prune them. You are already clean by the word. What word? The word of the gospel that he has spoken to them. The words that he has spoken about himself and what he's going to do and what he will accomplish. Although they didn't get it all and understand it all. But the word, they were already clean. They were already his people. As he was speaking to them, they were already his people. And how were they his people? By the word. So take that now over to his priority. Priority number one, that I think God's word abiding in us causes, is we resonate with his priority to save a people, namely us, along with those people. We, we center in the gospel. We glory in the gospel. We glory in God's purpose to save a people. Our heart resonates with that. And it resonates that because we are continually reminding ourselves of that gospel. As, as his children, as we've said often, the gospel is for unbelievers, certainly. But it is for believers. We should, we should daily, daily, multi, times daily relish the gospel we should we should hold on to it i i hope maybe it's just me but as i was looking at that text when jesus said i'm preparing a place and as i began to think about that as i was in this series and i began to 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 really think about it that he's not going just to clean up the room i mean it's already jesus isn't going up there to to tidy things up so when we get there, it's there. He's not going to build the wall. From the foundations of the world, he's had a place. And I started to see that it, it wasn't about going to reorder the furniture or dust it, but it was about 
the way. He was preparing the way. I continually go back to that and think about that and glory in that. I, I hope that's what happens to you. Maybe not that text, but other texts. This week, as I was in Minneapolis and I was worshiping with, with those men, the, the glory of a text that 30 years ago brought me out of the pits of despair and, and uncertainty and wondering if I was going to preach to others and be lost in Psalm 25 came back to me that he who believes in me will not be put to shame. The glory of the gospel and, and understanding why I won't be put to shame because of what Christ has done. That he's finished the work. I don't have to finish it. To worry that I'll get there and find out it's only been partly done and I didn't make up the difference. I hope that you continually are, are fueled by the glory of the gospel of God's grace, by the glory of God in the face of Christ. See, that's part of what it is to have his words abide in you. If you don't think much about the gospel, then, then I, I, I want to say to you, his words are not abiding to the degree they will need to abide for you to experience the promise that he has about prayer. You have to start there. You, you have to learn to cherish the gospel. Cherish it again and again and see it in, in multi-screens, multi really, the, the way it's displayed in different ways throughout Scripture. That this book, this book is about how God has worked to save a people. It, it culminates in the coming of Christ. All the promises are yes in Christ. Um, I, I hope you see that. But the priority, number one, that God is saving a people and you let that saturate you. But secondly, there's another priority, I think, that it means to have his words abide in us. That's the whole idea of the last few weeks where not only is it God's priority to save a people, but it's also God's priority to sanctify a people, to make a people more and more like himself, to prune a people. He, he is committed to pruning his people. It says in the text, um, every branch that does not bear fruit, he, he prunes that it may, may bear more fruit. He doesn't, he takes away the dead branches, but if if we're connected to Christ, and we are by the gospel, he is committed to pruning us that we will bear much fruit. And you see, part, secondly, not only are we in the light of the first priority, that God is saving a people, that he's done everything he needs to to save a people, that in fact, you are already clean. You are already clean by the word that I have spoken to you. You are already clean today if you have trusted in the gospel of God's grace. You are already clean. His pruning does not mean he's got to prune off some more things to make you fit for the kingdom. He's done everything you need to be fit for the kingdom. And it's in that context of resting in that and knowing that that we then open up our lives to allow him to prune us. We allow him to work on our hearts and to do heart work, to do real heart work, not just surface stuff, but I mean cutting, going right to the core, going right to the, to the, to the valves of the heart and, 
and cutting and rearranging. You see, the second thing that I think it means to have his words abide in us is, is those words begin to do a work there. They begin to do a cutting and a rearranging of our hearts. And our heart begins to resonate with the idea that that's the way God works. The second thing, the first thing that I, I think letting his words abide in you means is, is cherishing the gospel, cherishing the fact that you're already clean and why you're already clean. But the second thing I think the heart that lets the word of God abide in them is it lets that word do its work. It lets that word. You're, you're asking often, what's going on in my heart? What, what made me do this? Or what made me do that? What, what, what's happening? You constantly recognize God's pruning and working and, and you welcome it. You welcome it. And, and you, you let his word show you the ways in which God wants to work in you. And you're willing to let that happen. I think it's in that context of those two priorities, changing our priorities. It's in that context that, that then as our priorities became, become about bearing fruit, so our prayers become about bearing fruit. It, it influences our prayers. And we don't pray about the stuff that, that we once prayed about. Um, or at least we pray for a bigger picture in mind. We, we begin to pray that we would have a life of words and deeds that point people to believe in Jesus that point people to see the glory of God in the face of Christ. We begin to see that God is saving a people and then he's so pruning and working in the people by his word and changing their heart and changing their priorities that their priorities become the priorities of God. And they begin to live a life of fruit-bearing. They begin to live under the mantra Whatever you do, whether you eat or drink, or whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. You see, that's what fruit-bearing is about. Fruit-bearing is about people giving glory to God, realizing God is the one who produced that in the life of a person. God is the one who did that work in the heart. That's where it's all headed, to his glory, to his honor. So that's what I think it means for his words to abide in us and that our prayers can be answered because our prayers are so influenced by his word abiding that we pray according to purposes that God has and priorities that God has. Now, if that's going to happen, let me just share quickly and then I'm going to close this morning that that some things will need to happen probably and are happening if it's happening for you. You will need a Bible regularly. You will need Bible regularly. If you're going to experience the truth of this promise you will need bible regularly if you if you don't have bible regularly it won't happen because his words must abide in us you need to find and i say this to everybody here you need to have a a place you have a place for it in your schedule you need to have a, a time for it you need to have a plan for it. I, I would encourage you to, to find a plan of how to read the scripture. Not just do it willy-nilly, but have a plan that gets you regularly in it. You'll want to memorize it. You'll want to journal about it as God 
causes it to abide in you, you'll want to chew on it. All of that is because you need to chew on it. You need to chew on his word. You need to find a way to chew on his word. Young people, I would say to you, most important thing if you're not doing it today would be to start doing that. To, to find a way to put his word into your life. You need to, secondly, you need to read it in a certain way. You need to read it for heart change. Maybe you read the Bible today. And, and maybe you read it for heart change, but maybe you don't. You know, people, people can know the scriptures. They can know a lot about the scriptures. In fact, there are many who would put Christians to shame in what they know about the scriptures. But the, the difference is they don't read it for heart change. We should read it, but we need to read it for heart change. When you go to the Bible, you, you go to it and say, God, I want this word to abide in me. I just want, don't want to just know more knowledge. I want it to abide in me. I want this word to, to resonate in me, to change my priorities, to be your priorities. God, help that. Pray that way. See the big picture of God saving a people and sanctifying a people and using his word to do that. And the third thing I would say is read first, then pray. When you talk about some of you, I, I can't pray or I don't pray very well or I fall asleep when I pray. Read first and then pray. Let your, let your prayers be influenced by what you read. Um, pray according to what you read. Um, there, there are actually books out there that you can buy. The reason I'm, I've just been reminded of that is because for the Fogarty's, my wife gave a book to them, which, which is how to pray God's will for your son. And the way you pray God's will for your son is you pray scripture. You just pray scripture. Um, there's books like that. How I, I took one out that I had. I haven't, I haven't looked at it for a while after I thought about that in my desk, how to pray God's will for your wife. There's, there's different, but the point I'm making is read first, then pray. Let your prayers be influenced by what you read. You see, that's what it means for God's word to abide in you. The more that you let God's words influence what you pray, the more clearly you experience the, I think, the, the reality of the promise that's given here. That's really what it's talking about. So, the key is, Praying with power is to become the kind of person who does not use God for our ends, but are utterly committed to being used for his ends, his priorities. Let me read a quote with you, and then I'm going to close this morning and let you go. But this comes from another, but it sums up what we've talked about here a bit. Maybe it will be helpful in kind of putting a cap on it. The writer says this, Prayer is not for gratifying natural desires. It is for fruit-bearing, for the glory of God. If you want God to respond to your interest, you must be devoted to his interests. God is God. He does not run the world by hiring the consulting firm called mankind. He lets mankind share in the running of the world through prayer to the degree that we consult with him and get our goals and our desires in tune with his purposes. The evidence for this is in the writing of John in 1 John chapter 5 and verse 14. He says, This is the confidence which we have before him, that if we ask anything according to his will, he hears us. Prayer is not for gratifying our natural desires. 
is for gratifying our desires when those desires have been so purified and so saturated with God that they coincide with his plans if we ask anything according to his will. John puts it another way in 1 John 3.22. Whatever we ask, we receive from him because we keep his commandments and do the things that are pleasing in his sight. That was 1 John 3.22. In other words, prayer is not for gratifying natural desires. Prayer is for satisfying the desires of people who are devoted to God's desires. James puts it another way in James 4.3. You ask and do not receive because you ask with wrong motives so that you may spend it on your pleasures. Prayer is not for gratifying natural desires. Prayer is for fruit bearing. That's a key, isn't it? To tie it. Prayer is for fruit bearing. If we want to have power and effect in praying, we must devote ourselves to getting our desires in alignment with the fruit that God means to produce through us by pruning, I might add, that that fruit always has to do with the hallowing of his name, the coming of his kingdom, and the doing of his will the way the angels do in heaven. Now, you might ask the question, but it says that we should pray Give us this day our daily bread. Isn't that a natural desire? Isn't that something that we're told to pray for? Yes, but again, in the context. It doesn't begin with giving us our daily bread. It begins with his name being hallowed. Hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come. Thy will be done. You see, it begins there. And and so then we pray about our daily bread, about our daily stuff, it's not wrong to pray for that. But with the priorities that whatever happens will be done to his glory, that his name would be hallowed and his kingdom would come. And so how does that affect our daily bread? My confidence is that God will give us all the bread we need to live for his glory. Sometimes that might be none. Sometimes we might be called to starve to death for the glory of God. You see, that's the greater thing, his glory. And he will give us all we need. We've said it often. He will give us all we need in any given circumstance. He will give us all the grace we need in any given circumstance to live for his glory to do it for his glory. I believe God helps us. I believe he, he, he begins to let his word so abide in us that we start to see that. That's really what we're seeing, that all of life needs to be lived for the glory of God. All of our prayers are about the glory of God. I, I haven't thought a lot about this, but as I was thinking yesterday, it came later in the day, so I didn't fully, but the, the text that came to me was... That, that sometimes we don't even know how to pray. And the Holy Spirit prays. The helper comes and prays. We don't even know how to form the word sometimes. Sometimes I think um, certainly that must be the case for, for believers. Sometimes we don't know how to pray. We don't know exactly how to pray about the specifics, but we can pray about the bigger plan always that you would be glorified, Lord, that, that my life would be lived to the glory of God, that, that there would be a sense in which there would be fruit-bearing in my life because of the heart work that you're doing that would cause people 
to see and ask for the reason of the hope that's within us. We're going to close this morning with the song, All I Have is Christ. And at the end of that, it, it says that, 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 that God, you would be all that I need so that people could see you. Let's stand and sing together. I once was lost in darkest night Yet thought I knew the way The sin that promised joy and life That led me to the grave I had no hope that you would own A rebel to your if you had loved me first, I would be filled you still. But as I ran my hellbound race, indifferent to the cost, you looked upon my helpless state and led me to the I beheld God's love displayed You suffered in my place For the wrath reserved for me Now all I know is grace Hallelujah All I have is Christ Hallelujah, Jesus is my life. Now, Lord, I would be yours alone, and if so, all I see the strength to follow your commands, you're never come. Father, use my ransom life in any way you choose. And let my song forever be my only boast is Hallelujah, all I have is Christ. Hallelujah, Jesus is my life. Hallelujah, all I have is Christ. Hallelujah, Jesus is my life. Pray together. Father, we pray that that we would live out the reality of Christ being our life, that, that his words would so abide in us, that, Father, that would, would flesh its way out in our lives. Help us, Lord. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.